Good morning. It's good to be here this morning, to be able to share from the Word of God, to be able to worship together as the body of Christ today. Um, the last time that I was up here uh, sharing anything, it was the testimony service. And that was an opportunity for all of us to come up and share what God has done in our lives. And what was so interesting is that most of us, in, including myself, most of us couldn't help but get a little bit emotional when we were up here. And I think that the reason for that is because so often we're thinking about the future and what's next and what we have to do and what we have to accomplish that we seldomly look back and just think about what God has already done and just thank him and give him praise for what he's provided. And I know when I was up here, the reason that I got choked up personally was because I was up here with my kids. And I was here looking at my sons, and I just couldn't believe that they were mine. These, are, these boys are my sons. Just a moment to really reflect, an amazing thing. Now, our children are truly a gift from God. There's no question about that. But don't get me wrong, they, they test my patience. Very often, my patience is tested with these boys. But, yes, a gift. Now, for those parents who are here who have kids, particularly those who are above the age of, let's say, seven or eight years old, you might deal with some of the things that I've dealt with a little bit recently with my oldest son. You see, my oldest son is about 11 years old, and he has kind of a, uh, a tenuous grasp of the laws and the rules in our house. You see, he knows what the rules are to the best of his ability as an 11-year-old. But I make sure that I try to teach him not just what the rules are, but why they are the rules that they are. You will respect your mother, and this is why. You will strive for excellence in the things that you do, and this is why. We go to church, and this is why. But sometimes when he leaves the four corners of our house, and he goes out into the world, those rules and those laws start to get a little bit distorted and changed and muddled and they dissolve a little bit. So he might come back one day and say something like, well, I don't really want to do that. I'd rather do what he gets to do. And, and I want to do what they do. Oftentimes I find myself saying, you know, it doesn't really matter what they do because I'm your father and I love you. Now, isn't it interesting that that is the case for many of us as Christians today? That we seem to have a tenuous grasp of the law and the word, but the moment that we leave the four corners of the church, things start to get a little bit muddled. Things start to get a little bit dissolved and lost and distorted. And I think the reason for that fundamentally is that we don't really have a comprehensive understanding of the whole word in its totality. I think the reason for that is because we don't really understand the reason for the word, the reason for the law. And there are three primary reasons for the law, so let's go through them quickly together. The first reason for the law primarily is so that you can look at the law and recognize that you are wholly inadequate to fulfill the law in its totality. That when you look at the law, you recognize that you are imperfect, and that there is a great chasm between you and perfection, perfection being God. 
And through that recognition, you are led to realize that you desperately need a mediator. You need someone to fill in that gap because without it, you are hopeless. That is the primary reason for the law. Now, I think most Christians, all Christians, hopefully, affirm that that is the first reason for the law. The second reason for the law is more broad. The second reason for the law is to restrain evil in a society. I worked at Temple University Hospital for seven years, and I would go there on the weekends. And I would go there, and every single time I went there, I was never shocked by the fact that every time I went there, I was working with a gunshot victim. That never shocked me. Do you know what shocked me? What shocked me is that every single time I went there, it was a different one. That's what shocked me. You see, you might look at a city like Philadelphia or any other city in the country or the world, and you might say that that's lawless. That's without order. And to a degree, you're absolutely right. But can you imagine if there was no law at all? Can you imagine? Cities like Philadelphia would burn down in a matter of days, weeks. There'd be nothing left. The second reason for the law is to restrain evil in a society, and I think most Christians can affirm that. But you see, it's the third reason for the law where people fall off, where Christians fall off. Because the third reason for the law is to teach you how to live. That's the third reason for the law. This word teaches you how to be a man. It teaches you how to be a father, a husband, a son. This word teaches you how to be a woman, how to be a mother, a wife, a daughter. This word teaches you what it means to be in the church, to be a part of the body of Christ. It teaches you what a government should look like, what a citizen should look like. It teaches you all of that. The problem is that we don't have a comprehensive understanding of it. What tends to happen is most Christians just cherry-pick the good parts and leave everything else to the side. My wife and I, um, this year, are going to be celebrating our 13th anniversary. And so often, time to time, we like to go on a trip and travel for our anniversary. We've done it a few times. For our 15th anniversary, we are hoping, really hoping, God willing, that we'll be able to go to Italy. That's our hope. Now, I have wanted to go to Italy for a very long time. Since I was a teenager, I've wanted to go to Italy. And it's not because of the pasta and the pesto and things like that, though that is very enticing and I look forward to that. The reason, truthfully, that I want to go there is because I want to, with my own eyes, see all the beautiful architecture and art that was created by those most famous artists in history. And when I go there, I want to see a couple things. I want to see the museum in Turin. I want to see this famous statue, the Pieta. But most of all, I want to see the Sistine Chapel. That is the thing that I want to see the most. You see, from the outside, the Sistine Chapel is very unassuming. It's just a building. But when you go in, you are overwhelmed by the remarkable biblical imagery all over it. In 1508, the Pope at that time commissioned Michelangelo to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Now, you would think if, if you were commissioned to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, if I was, the way that I would think I would do it is I would take slabs in my studio 
and I would paint them, and then I would have them transported over to the Sistine Chapel and installed into the ceiling, right? That's what you would probably do. That's not how it happened. Michelangelo actually built a scaffold that went all the way to the top, and he craned his neck back, and he painted the entire thing by hand like that. Started in 1508, finished in 1512. It took him four straight years of work to do it. Now, when you step in and you look up, you see images from all sorts of parts of the Bible. You see creation, you see the flood, you see all sorts of things. The sides of the Sistine Chapel were painted by other artists. Images of Christ and the crucifixion, and, and it's, it's amazing. But when you stand there, all your attention is being led to the altar. And at the altar is a giant mural of the judgment, of the final judgment. Your attention is brought to it. Now, I want you to think about this. If you stood in the center of the Sistine Chapel and you were looking around and you were looking at all these images, you would likely say, just like me, you'd likely say, I've heard a sermon on that. I've heard a sermon on that. I've heard a sermon on that. I've been in a Bible study and I learned about that. Sunday school, I learned about that and that and that and that. But very few of us would point at the altar about judgment. Very few of us have ever heard a sermon about it. But perhaps we should. Perhaps we should. You see, for us to live out an authentic faith, we have to understand and digest and consume all of Scripture. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this day. We thank you, God, for being a gracious and a merciful God to us. I pray, O oh Lord, this morning that you open our eyes to the truth of your word. I pray, O oh Lord, that we be able to digest both the parts of the Bible that are easy and the parts of the Bible that are difficult. Not unto us, O oh God, but unto you be all the glory. Be all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Over the past few months, feels like a very long time, we have been in the Gospel of Matthew in a series called King and Kingdom, where we have been systematically going through Matthew. And in the past few weeks, we have been in a sub-series called The Parables, where we've been going through the parables. Last week, Pastor Billy spoke on the pearl of great price, the pearl of great value, about a merchant who was seeking out this precious stone. The week before that, Pastor Billy spoke on the hidden treasure, a man who found a treasure in a field and sold everything he had just to attain it. Today, we'll be going into the net. Matthew 13, verses 47 to 49, that Neil was so kind to read. Now, you've, if you've been in our church for a little while, you've probably noticed that the preaching style here is a little bit different than in other places. If you go to some other churches, they tend to preach thematically. So they'll preach a six-week series on joy. Or they'll preach a ten-week series on faith. Maybe a three-week series on giving. But here, we preach through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse by verse by verse. Have you ever thought why that is? Now, there's nothing wrong with preaching thematically. We, we do it from time to time. But the reason is, when you go verse by verse, there's nowhere to hide. 
There's nowhere to hide. You have to confront difficult topics. You have to confront difficult issues. And you have to share it. It has to be heard. In the 1700s, there was a famous theologian. His name was Jonathan Edwards. Famous theologian. He was asked to preach in a church in Connecticut to be the guest preacher on a Sunday morning. Now, I've never been asked to preach in a different church. Um, I would imagine that if I was asked to preach somewhere else, my uh, senses would be heightened to the sensibilities of the people in the crowd, you know? I know that there's many pastors who would try to put together a message that was really uh, people-pleasing, that would tickle the ears, that would make people really happy. Jonathan Edwards walked into that church on July 8, 1741, and he shared a message entitled, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. <laughs> that was the name of his sermon. And I'm just going to read three sentences from that sermon. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of a God whose wrath is being incensed and provoked. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, ready to burn it asunder, and you are without a mediator. Now you hear something like that and you think, some might say that, that is excessive. That is just, that's too much. That's too much. We shouldn't do that. But you know what's so interesting? That particular message on that day is credited as the spark that ignited the first great awakening and revival. It was that message. Many were said to come to the altar that day to meet Edwards and say, what do I have to do to be saved? Help me, help me change my life. What do I have to do? You know, when you comb through scripture and you look for passages on judgment and hell and, 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 and its fury, there is one who teaches about it more than anyone else. Do you know who that is? Jesus Christ, our Lord. He teaches about it more than anybody else. So you would think that if our Lord taught about it more than anyone, then it's something that we should appreciate. It's something that we should at least hear. So let's get into our passage for today. Matthew 13, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. Gathering fish of every kind. My wife and I, um, we watch this show where this chef travels the world and goes to these remote places and he tries to capture ingredients and animals and things like that and he uses those things to cook world-class meals. And every so often he's on the dock or he's on the side of a river and he's got this circular net that he casts out into the water. One side is tied to his wrist and then after some time, he pulls that net in, hoping that it's full of fish. Now, when we read this, we immediately think that that's the kind of net that we're talking about, but it's not. Jesus isn't describing that kind of that net. This kind of net is completely different. Some historians say that this net is something like half a mile to a mile long. One end of it would be anchored to the shore, the other end to a boat 
that boat would go out as far as it possibly could and would sweep from left all the way to right, slowly coming back to shore, capturing every single thing in its path, slowly but surely making its way to shore. That's the kind of net that our Lord is talking about. Now there's one phrase in there that I want you to see. Fish of every kind. Now we know that our Lord never spoke an idle word. He was very intentional about the things that he said. So when we see fish of every kind, he, that's just not a throwaway term. He says things with purpose. What could that mean? Fish of every kind. The Jews at that time knew what he meant. Turn your Bibles with me to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's a very interesting passage that we don't really look at too often. It is an instance where two apostles are in a contentious moment. This is a time when Cephas, better known as, we all know, Peter. The Apostle Peter has come to Antioch where the first Gentile church is. And just to sum it up, the Apostle Peter comes to town. He sits with the Gentiles. He has meals with the Gentiles. He sits and talks with them and associates with them. He befriends them. But the moment that some Jews come to town and sit down, all of a sudden, he retracts himself from the table. He starts to disassociate himself from the Gentiles. Why? Because he is afraid of the rebuke that he will receive from the Jews. He was fine until then. Now, when Paul sees this, he literally says that I opposed Peter to his face. And he stood and he pointed at him and he said, how can you do this? Because to be in the family of God requires one thing, faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I have heard tons, several teachers and uh, Bible studies that use that phrase, every kind of fish, to simply mean race relations. That's it. That every kind of fish means blackfish and whitefish and brownfish, and they leave it at that. But that's what it means, every kind of fish. I'll tell you that that kind of an interpretation is weak. It's weak. It's, it's lazy. It sets the bar really, really low. It sets the bar really low because it's deeper than that. It's deeper than the skin. What Paul is saying is that any person who professes Christ as their Lord and lives as such is your brother and your sister, literally. 
So here's the actual bar. Here's the actual bar. When was the last time you checked on your brother and sister? That's the actual bar. When was the last time that you were there for your brother and sister in Christ when they were in pain? When's the last time you checked on them? Did you even know they were in pain? When's the last time that you told your brother or sister in Christ the truth to their face out of love because you care for them? That's the bar. Fish of every kind. Let's continue. Verse 48. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. I have a close friend of mine who loves to go fishing. It's like his favorite thing to do. And he tells me oftentimes, for those who don't fish often, he tells me that when he goes fishing and he casts out his line and he brings in a fish, very often they're no good. They're covered in bacteria or they're half rotten or they have some sort of growth on them and then he takes those fish and he he throws them aside. Here Jesus is saying that when this boat finally makes its way to shore, when it finally gets here and that net is brought in, there's a sorting process that's going to happen where good fish will be put on one side and bad fish on the other. Here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. What determines whether a fish is good or bad? That's what we have to answer. What determines whether a fish is good or bad? For that, Jesus makes it very clear. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verses 1 to 13. Let's read this together. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call out those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, one to his own business, and the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you can find there, invite them to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets, gathered together all those found, both evil and good, and invited them to the wedding hall, and filled it with dinner guests. Here Jesus is telling a separate parable, but you see a lot of the same similarities. Jesus is talking about a wedding feast and a king who throws a feast. He invites many people to his feast, but those people that he invited turned down his invitation. They even murdered some of his messengers. The king, undeterred, decides then to send the invitations to a wider audience. And eventually, the dinner hall is full. Let's read 11 and 13. 
But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here we have this curious case of this man who finds himself at the dinner and he doesn't have wedding clothes. The king approaches him and he says, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? What are you doing here without clothes? What's so interesting is the man has nothing to say. Notice that the man doesn't say, I'm here because I'm of this intelligence. Or I'm here because of who my parents are. Or I'm here because I make this much money. Listen to me. When he's standing before the king, none of that stuff matters. When he's standing before the king, none of it matters. Nothing. There's nothing that he can bring to the table. And what does the Bible say? He is what? Speechless. Speechless. So what happens? He hands him over and he is sent out to a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The same phrase that is used in our passage in Matthew 13. So now we have our answer, right? What separates that from good, from bad? What is it? It's that garment. It's that garment. What is that garment? Romans 13, 14. Clothe yourselves, therefore, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not gratify the desires of your flesh. Say that again. Clothe yourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ and no longer gratify the desires of your flesh. That is the robe. That is the robe. So when that ship comes to shore and that net is brought in and those angels start separating good from bad, there is only one factor that it comes into play is whether you're in Christ or you're not. And that's it. The question I have for you this morning is where do you fall in this sorting process? Where do you fall in this sorting process? Because to sit here doesn't mean you're in Christ. I don't want to burst anyone's bubble. But to sit here does not mean that. To authentically be in Christ is to profess him as Lord and to live it. And to live it every day. Every day. So let's go to our final verse here. Verse 50. And we'll throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, in my life, there have been several times where I have wept. There have been several times where I have I've cried. There have been several times that I've been in pain, mentally and physically, many times. But do you know what got me through those times? Those times when I was weeping, those times when I was hurting? What got me through was the fact that eventually it would end. Whether it was a week, whether it was a month, maybe even a year. Eventually, it would end. Jesus is describing a place where that doesn't end. 
Just as joy is eternal in heaven, so is this state in hell. That is what Jesus is describing. I want to turn to one more passage, Matthew 10. Matthew 10, verses 12 to 15. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And as you enter those, house, those houses, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Verse 14, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the land of judgment than for that city. Jesus here is disseminating the truth of the gospel. He's sharing the kingdom. And he tells his disciples to go out and to share this message with others. And he gives this very detailed commission to go into these homes. But for those who decline the message of the kingdom, he says this very interesting thing. He says it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who turn you down. Sodom and Gomorrah. What a, what a powerful thing to say. Now for those of you who don't know, Sodom and Gomorrah were profoundly evil places. In Genesis 18, Abraham is pleading with the Lord, please do not destroy this place because of its great evil. He says, if I can find 10 people that are righteous in this place, please spare it. It was not spared. In Genesis 19, two angels that are in Sodom and Gomorrah, blind men who are seeking to commit evil acts, and in their blindness, they continue to try. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. So how can Jesus say to these people in Matthew 10, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you? How can he say that? It's not complicated, actually. The reason he can say that is because Sodom and Gomorrah never had Jesus walking their streets. Sodom and Gomorrah never had God incarnate there among them, sharing the truth to them. Now here's the important part of preaching. Here's the important part of preaching. Application, right? We hear all this, but how does it apply to us? I want you to ask yourselves, if that was the case for those in Matthew 10, what then is it for us? We know about the life of Jesus. We know about his death his burial, his resurrection. We have the Bible in our hands. We have it in our homes. We have it in our phones. We have any book and any commentary you could ever want written in history can be delivered to your home tomorrow. You have the church. You have fellowship of the brethren. We have each other. And not only that, we live in the most prosperous and comfortable time that has ever existed in the history of humanity. What then will be the case for us if we decline this great gospel? What then will it be for us? Now, these are difficult things, I know. 
These are difficult things. But in order for us to live out our faith authentically, we have to consume, we have to digest the good parts and the difficult parts. As we close, turn your Bibles with me one more time. Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. Verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. I'm going to read that part again, just so it's clear to us. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. That clothing, that robe, that is not anything that you can do with your hands. That is not something that is man-made. That's not something that you can construct. That robe is nothing short of our Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross for you. So this morning, may we worship this God who has extended this grace to us. And may we not find ourselves as those who have declined this great gospel. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Understanding, Lord, that this grace that you have extended to us is one that is undeserved. We know, Lord, that when we look at the law, God, we know that we fall short. And we know that without a mediator, we are nothing but hopeless. How can we decline this, this offer of grace? Lord, I pray this morning that we all, every person in this room, I pray that we all be able to authentically wrap ourselves in that robe of righteousness. That we be able to put this cloth of salvation across our bodies. That we not be that one at the feast who is speechless. Lord, I pray, Father, that you show grace to us this morning. I also pray, Lord, that when we read passages like this, that we recognize that there are those in this world who are lost. There are those in this world who do not know you and do not know this gospel and whose minds have been completely convoluted and twisted. Lord, may this word build in us an urgency to share this great gospel with others that they may put this robe on as well. We thank you, Lord, for your great grace. And we pray for that day that we might stand before you faultless, faultless, because of that grace. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand to our feet and worship God together?